When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, got a crazy day today. We're recording two podcasts back to back, and we have um, something of a fan favorite, uh, certainly a personal favorite of mine. Uh, back in the virtual remnant studio, you may know him from such podcasts as Glop or Zinc and You, Partners in Freedom. Um, he is the uh, editor of commentary magazine uh he writes movie reviews these days for the free beacon he is a columnist for the new york post um and he and i are inveterate uh text message conversationalists uh john Podhoritz, welcome back to the disc to the well th- thank you so much you say i'm a fan favorite but you know all i hear is like oh this is chris starwalt's on this is his 87th appearance here's ab stoddard you know I just had her on last week. I haven't been on in like five years. That's how much of a fan favorite I am. You were on at the beginning of the pandemic. And the thing is, it's just like, <laughs> I'm on a podcast with you twice a month. Twice a month. So I I, I agree. I agree. I just, I, I, I love the thought of being a fan favorite. And I, I just hope that uh, it's one of those things like when we were kids, TV Guide would occasionally have like a, a listing uh, about somebody you know, on Mannix or something. And it would say something like Dean Jagger makes a rare TV appearance, uh, guest starring on this episode. It's something like that. Like some actor who had won a supporting Oscar, right. uh, supporting actor Oscar 25 years earlier. And he was only making a rare appearance on television because he was so either hard up for money or he was such a drunk, no one would hire him. But that's so in this case, it's like, I'm making a rare appearance. <laughs> yeah, but, but here. In that case, it's sort of like, do I eat cat food or I, do I do this episode of Manix? Exactly. Uh, um, uh, I think you're going to say, like, because there were shows um, from our youth where it wouldn't have surprised me. I don't know that they did, but like, like Robin Williams on Happy Days was kind of like a fan favorite, right? He's like, Mork coming back. For you kids, Mork for Mork was a Mork. And Mindy was a spinoff from Happy Days, um, you Philistines. Um, we kind of had a weird little uh, technical uh, glitch there, and we stopped recording for a second. But you were about to say something about Mork for Mork. So um, uh, that was where Robin Williams came from. Like Robin Williams, I read this biography of Robin Williams, and he was a street performer in San Francisco. Um, and uh, people in Hollywood sort of knew he was this, you know, improvisatory genius, but no one knew what to do with him. And he tried out for Laughing. That's a new Laughing didn't get it. And then he got this, you know, 
a part and um and no one had ever seen anything like him and that and uh uh he, Gary Marshall the producer of Happy Days and of course the great producer of The Odd Couple which is much more important uh Gary Marshall's kids said I want you to do a show about an alien and so he put the Fonzie in an alien which of course is preposterous and then there is this Robin Williams emerges out, out of this and you know the show gets a 40 million people watch it they put him on Mork and Mindy and then then it's uh then it's off to the races but yeah fan favorites uh yeah there've always been fan favorites like in the course of uh when you were always so happy to see someone pop up on a show you yeah, know come back the, you know like oh i can't believe he's coming back on the show kind of thing like yeah you know it's like uh 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 endora on 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 bewitch or uncle Ar- so it turns out uncle arthur on bewitch paul lynn's fantastic comic performance he was like only on 10 episodes or something like that but you know out of 250 but you know like it's just unforgettable you know so that's me i'm the paul lind of the remnant podcast entirely possible we i'm gonna leave open the possibility that we can find a more flattering analogy uh for your relationship to the cameos on, on on this podcast um all right, so the actually the 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 impetus for having you on was that uh and I still haven't seen the original tweet, so maybe you can describe it for people. But you texted me the other day saying I did not have this on my bingo card or words to that effect. And it was that Rob Schneider, uh the comedian, comic actor, the former SNL guy, was tweeting something about Murray Rothbard. Um so first <laughs> yeah. of all, before we get to why this is important, what did he actually tweet about Murray Rothbard? I think he just tweeted out some, some uh, you know, you'll never read anything smarter or something. There was some Murray Rothbard award or there was some thing on Reason relating to the Reason website relating to Murray Rothbard. I don't remember quite what, but it was just the fact that Rob Schneider even knew who Murray Rothbard was. That I thought, well, you know what? I mean, I know that there are these SNL people who have gone right wing. Obviously, Dennis Miller being the most prominent example, but uh, Victoria Jackson, Joe Piscopo, uh, Joe Piscopo, uh, and uh, and and Rob Schneider. And I knew that he had sort of he had gone right wing, but I didn't know that he was like reading, you know, deep in the you know <laughs> deep in the innards of right wingery, you know, it's not that he was just reading, you know, listening to listening to you or listening to Ben Shapiro or something like that. He was actually like delving into the work of, um, you know, uh, of, uh, followers of the, uh, you know, uh, the Austrian school of economics. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, like, I mean, we'll get to Murray Rothbard in a second, but like, it's, it's partly that Rob Schneider is kind he's not quite, the sort of who's Rob Schneider that Murray Rothbard is for like, who's Murray Rothbard. Cause like there's still people, there are people who remember, you know, some of his shtick and all that kind of stuff, but it's sort of like, you know, he was the uh, guy who said making copies, you know, right. Right. 25 Joe, years ago. Right. Yeah. Right. 30, 35 yeah. years ago. And it's sort of like for an older generation, someone saying, you know, uh, did you see what Larry Storch said about Walter Lippmann? You know? <laughs> I know that's exactly that's exactly a good analogy. Or you know, today it would be something like, you know, I don't know. Did you see 
uh, although now you would, it really would happen. That's the problem. Like I'm trying to think of a proper, you know, sort of, uh, you know, did you see Sebastian Maniscalco, uh, you know, uh, saying you should read Proust, you know, or, right. I, I mean, cause it has to be, it has to be sufficiently recondite for it really to, to work. And that's the interesting thing. So Rob Schneider, people mostly I think now know, cause he has a cameo in every Adam Sandler movie like right, that. Right. You can do it. Yeah, you, he always says you can do it. Yeah, so because um, they were on SNL together, obviously. But um, anyway, it was just a sort of—it's uh, one thing, as I say, to like know that these guys are, you know, have gone conservative, uh, and it's another to know that they're sitting around reading Murray Rothbard. You know, right? And so, and so again, we, we we're gonna we're gonna make this clear to people in a, in a second. But like I mentioned, Walter Lippmann, you mentioned Proust. Murray Rothbard was no Proust and no Walter Lippmann. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and so, no, the, but, and so, and, and apropos of that, we started. To, I, I, you put Murray Rothbard in my head, and I had some comment where I said, you know, if you're going to do a chart on the, you know, the x-axis is brilliance, and the y-axis is, you know, pure, not just crazy, but crankery, because there, there's a subtle difference between crazy and cranky. Um, uh, Rothbard would be just a crazy outlier, right? Because he scores almost 100% on both. And then you said, you know, this would be a fun kind of like uh, uh, game show where, you know, like, name that crank. Um, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, like the top category on the $20,000 pyramid. Right, right. Who is you know, the bri- yeah, Maury crankiest Roth- hybrid of brilliant yeah, and brilliant, crazy? but cranky. You right. know, it's like that would really, if someone actually could get that category from, and then we thought maybe we could come up with the names for that category right so uh, like and so we're not going to do this in, in any sort of scientific method but i figured we could talk about this for a minute and I'll, so i'll start since I, I i made the observation about rothbard for people who don't know rothbard was a truly brilliant brilliant intellectual sort of the founder of what today you might call paleo libertarianism because as hard as it is for some people to understand there was a strain of libertarianism that, is, that still exists. I mean, it's sort of the Rand Paul, Lou Rockwell crowd is its natural heir. But like normally you would think uh, libertarians for slavery would be like jumbo shrimp, right? You know? <laughs> um, and there was, and, 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 and Murray Rothbard comes out of this weird tradition of incredible, nasty, crankery towards um minorities uh towards um anybody who disagreed with him he is one of my favorite stories about him was apparently he was absolutely terrible he thought he thought he thought hayek was a socialist he hated ayn rand i mean he was a odd dude uh he was apparently terrified of heights and not just heights but like terrified of getting in elevators and would not meet anybody above the first floor and apparently there's this famous story about how he was like invited to this conference thing that was like on the 90th floor of some building and it took everybody an enormous amount of effort to convince him to get in the elevator and then like when he got came in he like stayed away from the windows and just said uh, greetings from the planet Earth or whatever, but he was he was a very strange <laughs> yes. dude. Yes. So I would say we were so, so, sort of trying to think of <clears throat> who are the great you know people figures like this, and they're of course m- mythical, legendary figures. You could say ultimately that Cassandra, right, is the original figure in in all of sort of recorded literature. Right, the 
the the prophet nobody believes um because she's so she she strikes them as all being so crazy and so they they don't they can't they can't make sense out of what she's saying that they should believe in but i i would say that a fan favorite of jonah and my fan his historical fan favorite here would be charles fourier mm. uh so if you think about Charles Fourier, who was like one of the original socialists, like as foundational socialists, and uh, came up with a whole systematic plan for how you would divide up the planet Earth into these sort of uh, square, you know, sort of like four by four hectares, and there would be individual governments for each of them with a, you know, it's, it's all not, and then... But it was all kind of brilliant and systematic, and he was a very um, charismatic figure, apparently. But um, he believed that should his vision for how of social organization actually be achieved, that the oceans would turn to lemonade. <laughs> I did not know that. Yes. So, so there you have kind of brilliant, but you know, self. I mean. Uh, self-abnegating in terms of being absolutely just totally bonkers you yeah, know I, I wish i had i should have followed up with with uh charlie cook from nr about this because he once told me about how he was reading about and like i have this whole theory about like at the end of the 19th century in the beginning of the 20, you know how it's like john Maynard Keynes said that isaac newton wasn't the first scientist he was the last alchemist right there's <laughs> this historical process by which like totally understandably magic and science, you know, where one begins, the other leaves off. So you could totally understand why in the rudimentary days of like chemistry, why looking for the philosopher's stone to turn, you know, lead into gold makes total sense. I mean, why wouldn't you look for that? Right. But like he he told me about, there was some engineer or some famous scientist who was a major influence in American public policy at some point, who also just happened to believe there were mole people living like a hundred feet right. beneath the surface. But like it, getting to this point about like where these lines are, Pythagoras um, had a religion, Pythagoreanism, which did not have a lot to do with triangles. And he, um, to, in order to be a member of the religion, you, first of all, you had to take a vow of silence, I believe, for five years. And among his, he's got all these loopy commandments. Like, never step on a crowbar, don't walk on roads. And um, my favorite is never, ever, ever, ever eat beans because beans give you gas and gas is, your, is the breath of life leaving your body. And also fava beans contain the souls of dead people. But like, you can't do this for Pythagoras or even, well, Fourier and the lemonade is strong. I got to say, I'm very impressed by that. But they have to be somewhat modern people who should know better. Right. About their craziness, right? Right. Um, so then we have like the brilliant people who are actually crazy, like probably clinically, you yes. know, clinically insane. So you have uh, in 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 liter literary terms, uh, I think an obvious case is Philip K. Dick, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, who the brilliant, genuinely brilliant and visionary science fiction writer. Uh, who had a who had a an inescapable theme, and his theme was that there is a world behind the world we see, right? That the world that we are living in and that we are living through does not really exist, and that we have been placed in some kind of simulation by some other form of intelligence that is manipulating us, and that it's all about how you see through 
the how how you see through this brainwashing into the real world and the 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 law you know the most popular iteration of this was the movie Total Recall which was based on a, a short story of his but it's the world behind the world and you know this is ultimately what the matrix you know this is where the matrix derived its theories from and all of this and the thing is that uh uh Dick came to believe that this was actually true and also had these like religious revelations uh, toward the end of his life and wrote four or five books at the end of his life that are, you know, works of insanity. Like they are, it's like looking into a, a, a diseased brain and how it functions to read them some, a couple of novels. And then apparently there are, there are, you know, graphomaniacal diaries and things like that. Um, so you have somebody who is Who's who comes up with this kind of brilliant, almost metaphorical, you know, metaphor for modern life and the falsity of the way people live and and how they live and 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 what's really going on, esoteric versus exoteric knowledge, and then basically it takes over his consciousness and basically destroys destroys his brain because um, it is it is the ultimate view of a schizophrenic, right? That that the the there are things, the things unseen are real and the things you see are not. And then he went from kind of embodying this as a metaphor to believing, to actually becoming kind of a, a schizophrenic uh, uh, later in his life. And then Robert Lowell, the poet who was either bipolar or schizophrenic or something like that. And the stories about him is that, uh, you know, he, you always knew Somebody said you always knew that Lowell was about to go back into the mental institution uh, <laughs> when he started talking admiringly about Hitler. And uh, I know somebody who was at a dinner party with him in London in the early 60s. I think this may be somebody you know. I think it was David Price Jones. It may be or somebody else, but apparently sitting at, at dinner and Lowell is his dinner partner. And Lowell turns to him and says, you know, Hitler wasn't that bad a guy. <laughs> So, um, you know, so there is that, right? The kind of the, the, and, and then ultimately you have the intellectual, this weird thing that happens, which is very tragic because it, it happens time and again, uh, people that we've known in the course of our, of our lives as, you know, uh, people on the right or in, in intellectuals on the right, or, you know, people who consort with intellectuals on the right, where people who, who have a taste for controversy or really want to explore difficult subjects uh that you know that hit third rails mm -hmm. like affirmative action was the one that i think of most readily people would write brilliantly about affirmative action and its costs and its consequences but somehow uh as they did so um they crossed some kind of a barrier line yeah and then would just keep going until they became scientific racists yeah yeah uh, I mean, there's a guy named Michael Levin at City College who wrote a lot for commentary in the 70s and was writing about the dangers of affirmative action and how it was belittling, you know, sort of creating two standards of judgment for races and stuff was belittling to the to the aspirations of, um, you know, of, of, of black people and all of that. And then, you know, by the 1990s, he was just a straight up racist and. Yeah, I want to uh, get to the 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 racism Jared and also, Taylor, you know, other people. I, I want to get to the racism and anti-Semitism stuff in a in a minute, but just to because once you go there, it really can't yeah. go back to the happy yeah, fun yeah. time. 
Right. Um, so let's go back to the fun. So part. speaking of famous people, he's not quite brilliant. Uh, one, I'm perfectly fine if you want to say his heroic, but uh, one of my, uh, since you brought up, um, uh, what was it, Thomas Lowell? Not, not Thomas Lowell. Uh, uh, Robert Lowell. Robert Lowell. Yeah. Um, Gandhi was into all sorts of what what some scientists call crazy ass stuff. Uh, he he slept with his nieces naked to control to to teach him self control. Uh, he was obsessed and kept a journal of his bowel movements. Um, considered bowel movements like right up there with Indian independence from from England as yeah. important issues, yeah. so to speak. And um and and. And really, as a much bigger black mark, and I think it actually has a lot has real relevance to a lot of the, the sort of anti-war and peace movements out there. Is he was not a believer wholesale in nonviolence. It was, you know, an anti-imperialism. His his advice to England was to surrender to Germany, to give up your towns and your cities um, and your homes, but uh, stay, uh, but but you know, but stay alive, right? You know, he's just give up, you know, surrender entirely to Hitler. He never he wrote letters to Hitler saying he was his friend. Um, never told him not to resort to violence. Um, and his advice to the Jews of Europe, which I think both of us would consider not entirely constructive, um, was that they should all, on principle, just commit mass suicide. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, yeah. and you forgot my other favorite because now you're getting into serious territory. But um, he also um, he drank his own urine. That's right. He's a big uh, big believer in drinking your own urine. Um, well, as Patches O'Houlihan said, it's sterile, and he likes the taste. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yes. Patches O'Houlihan. Um, One of the great. Uh, I I asked a friend about this, and he he recommended, and I completely forgot about this guy, Carrie Mullis. Do you know Carrie Mullis? He won the 1990, I want to say, three Nobel Prize for chemistry. Totally into acid. Totally into astrology. Um, uh, um, like, literally would say to people, I was reading this Washington Post thing about it, you know, telling people, you know, sort of like um, uh, Donald Sutherland and Kelly's Heroes saying, you know, stop with the negative waves. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So there's that trying to think who else we had we well then we have uh, again uh, getting back to the ugly category right we have uh, we have uh, william shockley the inventor of the um of the transistor um who became a again a scientific racist uh was always an ornery person but like you know we, he was someone to pay attention to because he was this in, in incredible engineering innovator and then you know basically started applying believed that he knew everything about everything uh, and uh, and then you know applied the r rational logic with which he had figured out how to miniaturize <laughs> to uh to, to to everything else and um every people hated him before he became a nazi but basically um yeah uh, i mean but isn't that part of the what makes isn't that part of the dynamic that that does this for a lot of not everybody but like we both know people who are absolutely brilliant in what they're brilliant at and you can't tell them that just because you're smart at this doesn't mean you know what you're talking about about that, right? And so there are people who are um, who become so convinced that they are polymathic geniuses 
that they start applying their intellect to things and just, I mean, I, I don't want to call him a crank, but like Richard Epstein's, you know, thing about how COVID is no way, no way. Yeah. He's looked at the math. There's no way it could kill more than 5,000 people. 5,000 people were going to die from right. COVID. <laughs> and yeah. there are a lot of people like that who, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's one of the reasons why we got the progressive era is a lot of these people who were engineers thought, okay, well, we figured out how to like move earth and melt steel to do X and Y. So, of course, politics will be really easy too. Right. And it just doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, there, there are, you know, uh, great thinkers, um, uh, br- brilliant people see connections that other people don't see. That's the definition of of brilliance: is being able to to see things that are not apparent to other people and even to explicate them. But that is not a uni- that is not universally the case with anybody. It's like you know you 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 have a a vision of something that is um, wholly original, but that doesn't yeah that doesn't mean that you can paint you know or something like that, and so. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a that's a, a a classic sort of delusion. But um, the cranks do have the ability. I mean, uh, uh, Ayn, Ayn Rand is a good example of this in in some fundamental way, which is that she, um, the reason that she was wildly popular is that she was a propulsive storyteller. Uh, with a with a with a real idea about how to tell a kind of epic tale of a certain type uh, that millions that thrilled millions of people, right? So in these two books, right, Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, uh, both of which were informed by her philosophy, but which many people could read and not have any idea about her philosophy. One is about you know a guy who builds uh, buildings and uh, designs buildings and uh, wants to make sure that they're built in the right way and has this you know crazy woman that he uh, both uh, pursues and ignores. And then Atlas Shrugged is like a great science fiction novel about again the world within the world, the creation of this kind of uh, uh, you know uh, overweening bureaucracy and the people who refuse to participate uh, in this uh, world of overweening bureaucracy and retreat to a magical land behind a cloud in Colorado and and they they design super trains and all of this and for some, these are really compelling books that tens of millions of people read with enjoyment and then she builds a cult. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and the cult is a cult of cranky is a, is a crank cult, but involves a lot of people. And then including the future chairman of the federal reserve board. (laughs) All right. So let's, 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 let's go there. Like there's the, before you were saying about Philip K. Dick and the, the, the the psychological, you know, uh, component that caused them to like the sort of the blood brain barrier between fantasy and reality kind of goes away. Right. Um, do you have a, I think we'll both agree that there are many rooms in the mansion of anti-Semitism, but one of the, I think that one, there's, there's a reason why sort of like the Fibonacci series or something, there's a reason why all sorts of people fall back on anti-Semitism as the Rosetta stone for understanding reality. And it's it's because there is something about the brain that wants us to believe that there are a small number of people with a lot of power who are deliberately focusing on me 
in making my life bad or inconvenient or standing in my way. And the Jews just sort of fit the paradigm better in uh, particularly since there's so much like sort of like with anti-vax people, if you get just the slightest taste of anti-Semitism and want to taste more, the do your own research (laughs) (laughs) virus allows you to find all sorts of things. Right. Um, And so like, I didn't know Joe Sobron personally. He's another guy I would put on the brilliant and crank thing. Um, did you ever meet him? He was a famous oh, yeah. National Review writer that Bill Buckley I met eventually... Him, I met him, I met him and, uh, you know, needed to take a bath after I met him. I mean, the interesting thing about Joe Sobron, who was indeed very brilliant, he was a, he was a, a writer at National Review. He was probably the most um, polymathic. Uh, he, he wrote with incredible grace. And he was a he was a freak. I mean, he was he didn't bathe. He was a hoarder, um, uh, and he was consumed by conspiracy theories, not just anti-Semitism, which was which was the one that uh, you know undid him most. But he just had a taste for them. One of my favorite enduring conspiracy theories is, and he was one, is Oxfordianism. That is the idea that the. Uh, uh, that the Duke of Oxford uh, was Shakespeare, uh, right. and that uh, and that uh, Shakespeare didn't exist, or Shakespeare was a second rank actor, and you couldn't possibly imagine how this guy from Stratford upon Avon could be educated enough to be Shakespeare. It had to be a nobleman, and there are a couple of choices, and so the so the, the Duke of Oxford is 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 the is is the guy. And, uh, and and to believe this, you have to believe that there was this massive conspiracy theory that involved Ben Johnson, uh, Ben Johnson, uh, contemporary great writer, contemporary of Shakespeare's, who said that uh, Will Shakespeare never blotted a line, meaning he wrote his plays like from beginning to end without blood, that he was the, the greatest mind that he'd ever seen and that somehow Johnson's writing about Shakespeare was designed to throw people off the scent of the he was um, in on it. Uh, he was in on it and um and, and all of that and there are all sorts of uh, cultural reasons as i say why uh, this this came to be believed in england largely snobbery which is um shakespeare was from modest means and um and it's not clear where he would have gotten his education but we don't know very much about shakespeare the most obvious thing to believe about shakespeare is that he was shakespeare was the author of shakespeare's plays because there's no evidence that anybody else was, and there's plenty of evidence that he was, and therefore you have to create this whole theory. And I just think people who believe in stuff like this will believe in every version of it. So it, there's a connection between being an Oxfordian and being an anti-Semite, because it all involves this idea, again, that there's a world, there's a world behind the world. So the weird thing about anti-Semitism is that it's all-purpose because on the one hand, it's about how this small cabal of people control everybody. And on the other hand, um, Jews are vermin. Uh, they're, they're lower than everybody. Uh, they're, 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 they're cockroach-like. Uh, uh, they're dog-like, in, according to the Iranians, or they're cockroach-like, uh, according to the Nazis. Um, um, so on the one hand, we're all-powerful, and on the other hand, we're insects. Um, and so how can you both be all powerful and an insect? Well, you can't, it's all, it's just that you, you, you are what you need to be. Jews are therefore what they need to be 
in terms of whatever the theory is, you know, they're they're cockroaches, so they're carriers. Uh, we're carriers of disease, and uh, and and we're unkillable, right? We're unki- You know, we we've survived. How is this possible? Uh, we're cockroach-like, and we and we're we're uh, we, we're uh, parasitic and uh, and uh, scrounging and uh, and uh, and all of that. And on the other hand, yeah, we we sort of we're we're also uh, secretly the puppet masters um, of the of the universe. So if, if these are the theories, you have to ask yourself why why can someone alternately believe in one version or the other of this? And it's because uh, of the need to believe that there is a uh, you know that there is a sort of uh, evil other presence, uh, depending on what what it is. It's either it's either uh, bringing disease or uh, keeping you down and controlling you, and so it doesn't really matter which. Somehow, so I would be remiss since you're the editor of commentary, and I wrote for commentary this thing about the sort of anti-Semitic tropes within Marx and Marxism. Um, there's a really like so Karl Marx was a huge conspiracy theorist. Um, he thought that like the Crimean war was this whole, you know, conspiracy. He thought, um, I can't remember what it was, but like, like the, the British prime minister was a paid Russian agent. I mean, there's all this weird stuff. If you Google Marx and conspiracy theories, you'll find them all over the place. And he was also a, despite being of Jewish heritage, he was, you know, a pretty amazing anti-Semite. Certainly, by the kind standard- of a foundational anti-Semite. That's I mean, a right. lot of what we take to be modern anti-Semitism was m- systematically laid out by him in his a couple of pamphlets about the Jewish question and the Jewish problem. Right, and uh, all the tropes of anti-Semitism that have followed kind of appear in nation form in in that in that work. Right, and in, in many ways, his critique of capitalism was that it was too Jewish. Right, and that right. it was the parasitical vampire, like, uh, these are the language that he used, you know, feeding off of the productive value of people the way the Jews do. And, um, so anyway, it's, it's, I think the point is right. Is like once you're, although we, we should just clarify for any Oxfordians, is that the right phrase for it? Um, you were not saying you, while you were saying there was a link between Oxfordianism and antisemitism in the mind of Joe Sobern, you're not saying that Oxfordianism is, objectively anti-semitic in it. no no i'm saying i'm saying that if you find a conspiracy theorist they will tend to believe in more than one conspiracy right. theory. because why wouldn't you so it makes sense that joe Sobern would be attracted both to anti-semitism and to oxfordianism let's say uh because a world where you imagine that that which you see is not that which is most important or that is which is most real now that's of course a fundamentally religious view, right? That that uh, the, the God is unseen, yet He is everywhere. You, that's not a conspiracy theory to believe in God's the working of you know the working of the divine of divine providence or whatever. But it's a kind of application of that idea to more rational. In that more workaday endeavors, and that's of course it's both uh, that makes it a heresy kind of, or you know, idol, you know, an act of uh, uh, paganism to apply these ideas where they where they where they don't involve the divine. But it's, but yeah, so so Marx is a Marx, and that that's an amazing essay that that you that you wrote about Marx and anti-Semitism for us. 
And um, and it's important because Marx was a Jew, or you know, Marx was born a Jew, basically, um, and converted by his father. Right, his father converted. Um, right for right. career reasons. For his grandfather was like a re- grand rabbi or something. Yeah. Of- and, or something. and it's important because, as is often the case, people would say, "What do you mean? How can I? How how can my views be anti-Semitic?" A Marx uh, Marx said them, and he was and he was Jewish, right? So um, that that stuff is also very important uh, in this way. But I was thinking about other other uh, crank like cranks that um, they're like weird cranks, right? That people you would never know or expect would be cranks, like um, Arthur Conan Doyle. Right, Arthur Conan Doyle, who created the modern detective story, believed in fairies. Hmm. He believed that fairies existed and the world was kind of run by by fairies. And you know, he lived in the twenty. I mean, he was a he lived in the twentieth century, and in fact, engaged in a in a in a project to photograph fairies. Like he he believed that if you you could figure out some way if you like turn on a if you like lit a room suddenly and you took a picture you would see fairies. You know, it's also um, weird because because Holmes is like the foremost in liter- literature, the foremost avatar of pure reason. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. And you know he he uh, you know he he created Holmes and didn't like him maybe because Holmes was a standing objection to his to his mania or whatever. I don't know if you could call it mania again, like an early 20th century person believing, you know, in a rational or irrational or mystical things is not, is, is much, is, it's not, it's not craziness. Thomas Edison really wanted to talk to ghosts. He thought the radio was this way to talk to the, 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 the next realm and they would do seances. And there's a lot of that stuff with the early radio guys. And I'm, I'm, I'm a little more forgiving of that. Because, like, like I read somewhere, and I don't know if this is actually true, like, the panda bear was considered by a lot of people in the West to be a mythical creature like the unicorn, right? And so then all of a sudden, say you discover panda bears are real. Why, why wouldn't you think that maybe unicorns could be real, too? Right. And, and so, like, if all of a sudden you can hear voices from a thousand miles away or whatever it is through a little box... You know, why wouldn't you think that there are these other weird things that, you know, we're finally figuring out how to rediscover or, or master. And so I'm a little Look, more it's forgiving. A very, I mean, it's very hard. It's that perceptual, it's that idea of, um, if you went back in time to, you know, 1890 or something like that, your perception of reality, even 1890, which is not that far in the past would be entirely different from any from the most brilliant person who ever lived then at that moment because when they first showed the great train robbery the movie the great train robbery in 1903 which featured a man point, turning pointing a gun at the audience and firing the gun the audience screamed because they thought that somebody was firing a gun at them it's like the perceptual leap that Andrew Jackson could never make, why he didn't want a national bank and all that, because he could not get beyond the physicalization of the economy, right? Barter economy, you traded a good for a good, and that there was this thing called money, and it was a symbolic representation of your property. And he just 
the way I can't understand cryptocurrency, he can't understand, he couldn't understand the dollar. He he couldn't, it was a perceptual leap. And like in 1890, you'd come to the world understanding representations of the world in a way that um, people then just didn't, the most brilliant person alive, including like, you would say, no, 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 to, to to Thomas Edison, no, look at the radio, that sound, that static, that's what happens when there's no, when a signal is not resolved. Uh, and it does not, does not, uh, not that you and I really, under, I even understand what this means, but you have <laughs> to, you have to listen on the, the signal has to be broadcast at a certain uh, place uh, on the sound, and then you have to tune into it, and then you'll hear it, and when it's not that, you have unresolved sound. And so it makes this noise and, and how would he know that even though he invented the thing? No, it's, 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 I mean, the Heinlein thing about any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic is a really great insight. I, I, I often think about James the second, you know, at the beginning of the glorious revolution, he thought, ha ha, I will keep these people from taking the throne because I will take the seal Yes, uh, and throw it my, my, the seal of my rule and the road in the river, and we all know that no king, kings are like magically prevented from issuing orders without the seal. So it's kind of like this, like Indiana Jones without the ark, you can't do any of these things without the seal. You are forbidden, and it's like they're just like, eh. So we won't use a seal anymore, you know. But you know that feeling that things are indistinguishable from magic. I mean, I, this is one of the weirdest things of all, I mean, being sort of 60 years old, but it's now been 15 years or something like that. Every time I pull up to a toll booth and I have easy pass and I drive and the thing goes up and I drive through, I have this weird I don't understand how this is happening. This is so fantastic because I still have visceral memories of being on 95 between New York and Washington and hitting those toll booths in Delaware and in Northern Maryland or wherever the hell it was. And like being online for 15 minutes and like the torment, the torment (laughs) of being on those toll lines. And even now it's like second nature, easy pass. Or something like that. Or, you know, Uber. It's Uber still. It's like, I mean, I just take my phone, I press a button, a car appears. Like, you know, but it's all explicable. Or GPS or anything like that. You really understand how we live through this and we have that experience. Imagine what it was like to live between 1870 and 1920. And suddenly you're driving in cars, you're talking on phones, and you're fl- and people are flying in planes. And none of that had ever happened before in the course of history. The only thing there had been was the telegram or the railway train. Go back to 1800 and none of it exists. Yeah. That's amazing. Like the the people who were born in like 1860, Bill Crystal always said this, like the person who was born in 1860 saw more change in the course of his lifetime if he died in 1940, let's say than any human being had ever seen in the course of history or ever will again. Mass communications, mass transport, trains, cars, planes, uh, radio, movies, uh, the phonograph. Um, and, you All know, those the rise, empires going away. Yeah, right? you know, and the rise a, of totalitarianism in part yeah. made possible by, 
by the creation of all these modern wonders. I mean, also, because I, I haven't put this out to people, sliced bread invented in 1927. Like when people say greatest things in sliced bread, like yeah. they did not sell pre-sliced bread until 1927. <laughs> <laughs> I know so well, those things, those factoids are those those are like those. <laughs> this is like Chris Caldwell always had it was what was one of the was one of the guys who was the first one who would say things like do you realize that you know this would be like 1995 and he would say do you realize that um we uh we are closer to uh Tolstoy was closer to the uh to the American Revolution than we are to the breakup of Eastern Europe. I, I yeah, can't yeah, remember yeah, what yeah, I, yeah. like that that those things where it's like do you realize how time works like right you know we're farther like, away from happy days than happy days was from the 1950s Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> although although there is that jagged discontinuity of all American life, which is that um the sixties hit and uh the world before the sixties was so wildly different from the world after the sixties that when I was twelve years old, an American graffiti came out. American graffiti which is a movie about Modesto, California in 1963. So it was like 10 years earlier, 1962, something like that. And from the perspective of 1973, watching it on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, it was like you were watching a wildly vanished world. Yeah, yeah. Because it was before Vietnam, it was before the hippies, it was before, it was before everything that had sort of transformed everything. Uh, and, and it's not that it seemed innocent or anything like that. It was much more like, it was like a work of anthropology. It was like a work of historical anthropology. I was struck by this because everyone's talking about how this is the 50th anniversary of the Godfather. So I saw the Godfather when it came out when I was 11. Uh, and, um, it's set in 1945, right? It starts with the conclusion of the second book. Michael is back from the war and when the dawn is shot, it's Christmas time, 1945. And that was 27 years earlier than I saw The Godfather. And to me, it was as though it was the 19th century. The cars, the look of things, even though like it, the big scene takes place outside Radio City Music Hall, which was still there mm -hmm. when like we were kids. It's still there now. But, yeah. you know, um, where he sees the newspaper that says his dad has been shot um and that was 27 years earlier so 27 years earlier from now is 1990 what five yeah 1995 like doesn't seem as long ago no, as, not at all. Yeah. right as as 1945 seemed in 1972 i think that's right i think that's right, right. i mean for kids i mean there's this all this 90s nostalgia for you know whatever we're supposed to call the the youngest people gen z or whatever right. I, yeah i hate this crap um but um i have a hard time believing that they think the 1990s are as old-fashioned compared to today as as you thought 1940s were from 1973 or whatever or again like 1962 which yeah. is yeah i now remember where were you in 1962 that was the slogan for for American graffiti and happy days, which was set in the late 1950s in Milwaukee. Right. And right. was, 
you know, the weird, pro, pro, the weird genesis of Happy Days is that Happy Days was made as a pilot, wasn't picked up for series, was put on Love American Style, which was an anthology series. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ron Howard was the star of that failed pilot. And uh, when he, and then George Lucas made American Graffiti. And when he was making American Graffiti, somebody showed him this Happy Days pilot. And he cast Ron Howard as the lead in American Graffiti. And because American Graffiti was a big hit, ABC then made a series out of Happy Days. So Happy Days actually preceded American Graffiti, but American Graffiti made Happy Days a series. Interesting. I did not realize that. Or, yeah, or I and forgot Happy it. Days, and the same thing, Happy Days starts in 1974, something like that. It's set 14 years earlier, and it is like they went in a time machine to a prehistoric land. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's really just, it's, it's weird. It. Since you brought up movies, um, and we're not, we're not going to get back into anti-Semitic cranks, although I was going to talk, I wanted to talk about Gore Vidal a bit, but that's not. Um, because I think he fails on the brilliant part of my um, right. XY thing. But he makes up for it in the crank part. Um, uh, some people on, on the Twitters, Wanted to know what your um, and we are not going to do a lot of this because obviously Glop covers this. For listeners who don't know, Pod and Rob Long and I, we do this thing called Glop Culture. It's a podcast. We basically we try to mostly talk about pop culture, but sometimes politics sneaks in. How many of the Oscar nominees for Best Picture have you seen? So there are ten of them. Is it ten or fifteen? There are ten. Okay, and I think I've seen six, Uh and that is the lowest number that I've ever seen. Yeah. I think it's six and it may be lower. So I've seen nightmare alley. That's one. I've seen West side story. That's two. I have to look at the list, but like, I haven't seen Coda. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't seen the power of the dog. I haven't seen drive my car. Um, you saw again, licorice are, pizza. You saw, I Belfast. saw licorice, I saw Belfast. You um, saw Dune. And I saw Dune. So I think I've seen I've seen six or seven. Yeah. Um, and uh, King Richard? Um, you saw King Richard? I, I, I haven't seen King Richard, but I have really no excuse for not having seen King Richard yet. But yeah. Drive My Car, I haven't seen it. It's a Japanese, three-hour Japanese movie about the staging of an Ibsen play. Uh, Dear God. Uh, and, uh, and apparently it's very slow. Um, and people no say way. it's wonderful. But, <laughs> yeah. And honestly, I haven't seen The Power of the Dog because I already saw a Western about, about su- got people with suppressed gay emotions. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. Saw, I saw Brokeback Mountain and I didn't really like it. And I don't like Benedict Cumberbatch. So I don't really want to see Power of the Dog, but I guess I'll have to watch it. Yeah. Uh, but I really, it's like, you know, Okay, I I get it. Like it's a lot of repressed homosexuality on the frontier <laughs> in the in the nineteen twenties. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with it. No, no, no. Yeah, I mean the only ones that I mean I haven't seen. I want to see Licorice Pizza and your recommendation uh, and, and Rob's. I want to see Belfast. West Side Story is fantastic, and it is now on HBO Max and Disney Plus. Oh, is and it? So I'll watch it. I, I it know is, people say it it's is great. just great, and I watched it again, and it is really great. And I was not expecting to like it. I did not want to like it. Um, do you think it's going to uh, win? No. What do you think is going to win? I have no idea. Uh, I, Coda may win. Coda, which is this movie about um, 
deaf people with a hearing child, mm-hmm. uh, which is on which Apple uh, TV Plus bought for twenty five million dollars, and it's on Apple TV Plus, uh, which no one watches, but it, it it keeps winning little awards here and there. And there's a the guy who plays the deaf father, Troy Katzer, keeps winning uh, prizes like the SAG Award and this and that, and it won an ensemble acting award from the Screen Actors Guild, which is often predictive. So even though, but that would be like one of those, what one? What's that? You know, but on the other hand, like nobody goes to the movies anymore. So, um, you know, it's not clear to me, you know, uh, for box office reasons, Dune should win. Right. Uh, Oh, we mentioned Don't Look Up, which is garbage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Right. Um, I don't know. I mean, the surf doesn't doesn't really. It, it so doesn't matter anymore. I mean, uh, the 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 speed with which uh, the importance of movies has subsided and the rise of streaming television has supplanted uh, movies in terms of what people talk about. You know, Squid Game was far more talked about than any movie over the last year. Um, it's not even that good. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it's wildly overrated. Wildly overrated, but like my 11-year-old loved it. Um and uh you know, I mean people just pay a lot of attention to Oh, by the way, I did watch again not to get I watched the first episode of Winning Time, which is the series on HBO about the about the Lakers. Oh, I've seen some snippets of it. Jerry Buss and I, the I really Lakers, want to start watching it. And it was so fantastic. Yeah. See, that's where there's all this nostalgia, not even nostalgia stuff. It's like all this stuff that's set in the seventies, and it's like just mainly you just shoot it straight into my veins, yeah, like yeah. you know, because that's when I was you know in my teens, and it was so crazy. Everybody dressed so crazy, and like Holly, they go absolutely licorice pizza is a prime example of this. I mean, it is just fantastic field to forage in because the country was so bizarre. Yeah, yeah. The fashions were bizarre. The behavior of the elites was bizarre. You know, uh, you know this kind of weird, sybaritic, crazy culture. And then the cities were all falling into the sewers. And anyway, you just can't, you sort of can't go wrong setting something in the 70s right now. Yeah, it's funny because, like, I remember, I think we must have talked about this on Glop, when I was in high school, which was in the 80s, um, uh, Somebody came in, I don't know what for, we had a lot of teachers in my really pretty bad private school that um, were like grad students who were like doing other things, you know, kind of stuff. And at some point, a bunch of us were asked to come in and they were doing some sort of audio documentary, NPR-ish kind of thing about my generation. And it was only when I started getting asked these questions about what I thought of the 1970s that I realized how much I viscerally hated the 1970s as almost like a matter of deep, deep conviction. And um, I think of like the New York City of the... I, I have wonderful memories about my family. I have wonderful memories about my friends and my school and all that kind of stuff. But I think one of the reasons why I have a misanthropic tendency is because I, I considered the outside world of New York City in the 1970s to be fundamentally scary and dangerous. <laughs> yeah. And so my apartment was my safe haven kind of thing. Yeah. And it, it, was. it was a terrible time in this country. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, 
for years, I was going to write a book called 1979. I never got around to it or I wrote a proposal and no one wanted to pay enough money for it. But I had this operating theory. I wanted to write a book like Looking Backward, which was a famous... Um, oh, I know. Or, uh, excuse me. Excuse me. Uh, only Yesterday. Uh, oh. Lewis, Lewis, Lewis Allen's book about the 20s written from the perspective of the 30s. And the idea was that uh, that the uh, misbehavior of America in the 1920s led directly to the depression. It was sort of like, we we deserved it. We deserved the Great Depression because we were so irresponsible and and carefree and and uh, and all of that. Uh, famous book, fun, total nonsense, but uh, as as I now understand it, but 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 uh, but a fun book. And I had this idea of writing a book about 1979 in the 1990s, and the idea was that just telling the story of what happened in 1979 explained American politics. That all of American politics was implicitly about: Do you want to go back then? Like the. That was the culmination of 20 years of a certain type of politics, and it all culminated with everything going to pot all at once, and that the fundamental Republican or conservative messages give them too much power, and we're right back in 1979. And guess what? We forgot. We lived we, it was too long ago, and we're now in 2022, and guess what? We're right back yeah. in 1979 with a president who was a senator in 1979 <laughs> on the wrong side of on the wrong side of every issue. But I mean, it's like we've got an oil embargo about to start that we're actually imposing on Russia. But you know, we have you know inflation. Yeah, we have rising. We have wildly rising urban crime. We have you know degraded infrastructure. We're gonna have gas we have lines. America, we have yeah. gas lines. We have America at sort of low ebb internationally. We have a loss of faith in our democratic institutions. We have a drug crisis. I mean, so it's like as long as people remembered the seventies, they knew enough not to go back to them. And then you know that after time, like people forget how how bad it was. And I think that like these TV series and stuff are going to remind people, oh boy, that was that this country was pretty not that this is, you know, it's fun to watch, but they kind of they were crazy back then. Yeah, I kind of feel like because Hollywood was so obsessed with the Iraq War that it kind of missed a cultural moment in covering in in dealing with the financial crisis of two thousand eight. To, you know, because that ruined a lot of people's lives. And there were a couple movies that kind of touched on some of it, but they were late. And you could have, instead, we got this steady stream of sort of, you know, anti-war, um, anti, you know, Bush kind of movies. And like that could have been, that could have been a seven, 1979 year too, you know? Yeah. War wanting that war going south that, you know, we didn't win. I mean, I under, that's certainly a 1970s theme. Um, but uh, it just it's kind of like just Hollywood did not have its fingers on the pulse of where the, the culture was 10 right. years ago. Well, so Rob Long, our, uh, our, our erstwhile third on, on, on GLOP, has a piece in the issue of commentary we're closing this week um, where it's a column, monthly column for commentary called Hollywood Commentary. And it's about how, so for three years, the Democratic Party has been, or two, two and a half years, let's say, Democratic Party has been uh, in the thrall of this um, uh, leftist attack on cops, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, it's done them immense damage, 
I mean, I think everybody sort of recognizes all the polling, David Shore, all this stuff, recognizes how defunding the police and all of that has actually been really bad in swing districts in Florida and elsewhere uh, in sort of destroying, uh, taking Democrats down and uh, making cases really hard for them with, you know, middle of the road voters and all that so much so that Biden then of course made this big pitch in the state of the union where he said, we shouldn't defund the police. We should fund the police. And Rob's point is, you know, it's amazing. Hollywood, you know, does all this stuff and they have a, they, they, they pay all this money. They give all this money to black lives matter and defunding the police. And they believe in all of that. Meanwhile, 75 million people a week are watching cop shows on, on broadcast networks. Look at broadcast networks, which are still larger and have larger audiences than the cable networks, right? You have three law and orders. You have three Chicago PDs. You have two FBIs. You have CSI. You have NCI. You have all these cop shows, all of which are about heroic cops busting crooks. Now, maybe right. they're not, you know, they're all, a lot of them are businessmen or people who are murdering their wives in the suburbs or something like that. But they're all about how cops are good. And the Democratic Party embraced this message that cops are bad. It's like, read the room. Yeah, yeah. Like, what is it that people are telling you that they like? You know what they like? Cops. You know what they like? Cops solving crimes and sending people to jail. You know what they don't? That means probably they don't like depopulating jails and they don't like attacking cops. Like, that's just like observation 101 right yeah I mean, and that and this i mean I, i've spent a lot of time thinking about some of this stuff because like the i always as a mental exercise i like to think about what evil things can tv or film producers have the heroes do that will allow the audience that will not interrupt the audience from hating the hero right and changing their mind and like sometimes you can just what you got to do is you just got to set the premise that like dexter the serial killer is the hero which I think is kind of evil and, and twisted, you know, but same thing with Hannibal Lecter, you know, like you just, if you set the premise at the beginning that, you know, we're, we're siding with this guy, you can get away with it. But generally speaking, like for normal, you know, like TV shows and stuff, you can't make the cops, the bad guys without actually making them criminals, right? Because if they're actually doing their job the way they're supposed to do, the audience is going to think they're the good guys. And and if you're going to claim that all cops are corrupt and racist and whatever, no one's going to want to watch that show. It's sort of like how Hollywood tried so freaking hard for the last 20 years to make successful anti-war movies that painted America in a bad light. And, you know, Lions for Lamb. I, mean, I can't even remember all of the ones that came out. And, like, the only thing that kind of squared the circle in a way was um, the Jason Bourne movies where they sort of said that the system is evil and corrupt and the CIA is terrible and stuff, but we're, st we're still going to give you an action star who kicks people's asses and yeah. does cool stuff. Right. <laughs> it's, um, it, it's, it's, it is kind of an amazing phenomenon that they don't know what the public is telling them. You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing that the public tells them, all the time what the public wants and then they just don't want to believe it or they believe it but it's also you know they don't get any um they don't get any social credit for it 
Right. So CBS, the most popular network, has all these cop shows, but um, it's not glamorous. It's not a glamorous network. It's like you know, it's it's not it's it's not HBO Max, and it's not it's not HBO, and it's not uh, in terms of FX. Phrasing it in terms of food, yeah. it's a really good steak or hamburger with fries that every with vanilla ice cream and apple pie at the end rather than some froofy gold leaf thing with kale crudo that is gets all the attention from like the food critics but no one actually really wants to eat except on a dare yeah anyway it's just sort of it's it, it's interesting because it is very hard to glean larger social messages from pop culture offerings um you know people do it wrong all the time and they think they think there are one-to-one correlations. So they think if you, you know, if you like a, you know, if you, if you like Top Gun, I, I don't even know. I, I, it's just like, you can't, you can't say, okay, Ronald Reagan's elected. So we'll make Megaforce. Right. And then Megaforce will be a big hit. Uh, if you don't know what Megaforce is, um, it's, Shame I, on I, it, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, but it is, it is, it was a jaw dropping effort to, to go right into, right at the Reagan worldview 1982 movie about you know a, a reagan-like force and uh and it, it's hilarious and uh produced by the same guy who produced the godfather by the way but um but it is uh so you know you can't quite do that but um but like i say you know if um if if uh if the easiest ticket to success is to put a cop show on the air maybe don't diss the cops so much like i i don't know i mean that would just seem to be a kind of good defensive st- stance. Um, well, no, but also I mean, like, like the, so I, I gave a big talk about this to a private group that I, I keep meaning to turn into an article, but like, I think about this a lot in terms of, you know, George Will had said on I, last time he was on the run and, uh, um, you know, that small ideologically committed groups move, change the world. Or something like that. And he was trying to give me a buck up little camper, stick with the remnant. We're going to get through this kind of talk. And I get it, you know, I mean, but the reality is, is that, that like, that's absolutely true. It's also true that most small ideologically committed groups fail utterly. (laughs) <laughs> and yeah well, i mean it's like you, small businesses 90 percent of small businesses right. fail right but 10 percent of them i don't know if they change the world but you know a, a lot of small businesses turn into mammoth you know successes um, right but the, but the failure rate is going to be very very high right and you're one of the few people out there who can name a lot more fringe ideological groups of the 20th century or 19th century than i can but like the Shackmanites, the Lovestonians, and then you go on this very yeah. long list of groups that kind of just kind of got subsumed into larger groups or just disappeared or whatever. And um, the part of my theory, you know, my, my Goldberg's rule, rule of American politics these days is that the p- behavior of both parties can best be explained by their in, innate desire to be minority parties. Right. And so, like, the the and both of us have talked about this a bunch, but all they have to do is not be crazy. And like, you know, the, the defund the police thing was a fantastic example of a minority, a ideologically committed minority elite capture because 
there was at the time, I kept looking for it, zero polling evidence that anybody believed in defunding the police. Like all of the relevant polling from Gallup and whatever, they would ask these questions of minority communities. They would break it down by, you know, race and gender and all this stuff. It's like African-Americans, majority of them wanted to have either the same amount of cops or more than a, a, a minority, not insignificant, wanted fewer. But as everybody knows, the difference between, they won't even poll no police for a while, right? Everyone knows there's a huge difference between fewer and none. Like I should eat fewer calories. Yeah. <laughs> not zero calories. Yeah. Well, but you know, there was also this extrapolation effect, which is also part of what I'm uh, talking about here in reverse, which is, so you'd ask people, do you think black lives matter? And 70% of them would say, yes, black lives matter. Going from that to, therefore, you should defund the police, even if the Black Lives Matter movement believes in defunding the police, people aren't saying they support the Black Lives Matter right. movement they're, they are sentimentally attached to the idea that black lives matter, and maybe they matter a little more than other lives right now because of what happened to George Floyd at any given moment. It's like saying right now Ukrainian lives matter, right? right. It has a certain resonance. Yeah, would anybody, yeah, right. would anybody say Ukrainian lives don't matter, right? right? And, and, and like that. So it, it's, um, but I will say uh, that things move faster than you realize or – this misunderstanding of the American people or what they want or what they think is so constant that, I, I mean, I think everybody on the political spectrum is startled by the speed with which the American people have gotten behind the effort to stop Russia and Ukraine mm -hmm. somehow. Mm -hmm. To the extent that they say things that are probably not entirely true, like, they're, they'll be happy to see high gas prices. Well, right. we'll see how they feel if, if gas goes to eight. Or they're all in favor of a no-fly zone when they clearly right. don't yeah, know what they, that means. And they don't really know what it means, but, but what they're saying is somebody's got to stop that guy and ask me questions about how to stop him, and any question that is about how to stop him, I'm going to say, let's try that for the most part. And um, I don't know that that was, I, it was not predictable because I don't know anybody who predicted it. The same way we don't know anybody who predicted that Europe was going to be so stalwart or that Germany was going to start announcing that it was going to spend 2% of its GDP on defense or whatever. Like there's so much that has gone on here. And again, that's in part because we live in this world of people where we cannot get ourselves out of the mindset of we only talk or listen to people who are engaged with issues. But they're not the people who make America run. It's the people who aren't engaged with issues who run the who run everything. And it's a question of how they engage with issues when they engage with them. If you say to them in the abstract, should we go to war over Ukraine in 2019, 90% of them would say no. Show a building being blown up in Kharkiv and suddenly 70% of them are going to say yes. Right. Because they're they're literalists and they they deal with the world as it is. We're all then so we spend all this, and that's why I think we spend all this time thinking about what could happen. That is what small ideologically committed groups do, and how to prevent bad things from happening. 
And then the question is, who has the best answers when the bad things happen? Who predicted that the bad things would happen and therefore should be listened to? Or who ignored that bad things were coming and therefore should not be listened to? That's a very big deal, but it only really happens at moments of real crisis. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I will say in my own defense, and I can find the audio somewhere, I did predict some of one aspect of this. I didn't predict, certainly didn't predict the Europe turnaround thing. That that really shocked me. Um, particularly Germany, you know, Sweden getting rid of neutrality. I mean, like, that's huge and yeah. unpredictable. And um, and I don't know that I predicted anything about America being in favor of going to war or anything. But I did talk about how, like, all of these J.D. Vance types and the NatCon, you know, jackasses and the the and the Tucker stuff. I remember on one of the dispatch pods, I was just like, "Look, all of this stuff is is in the abstract right now." But the, the second Americans see babies being bombed by by Vladimir Putin, the idea that he's going to remain like this popular figure for a lot of Americans is just ridiculous. And attitudes change. I mean, like, I mean, you talked about this on the commentary podcast, you know, like it, it was interesting to know what Americans thought about, you know, fighting terrorism on September 10th, 2001, but utterly useless after the buildings went down, you know, Americans, Americans got a big Andrew Jackson thing in them, and they they may not like the idea of imposing democracy. They may not like the idea of empire and the abstract, but they also have this "don't pull on Superman's cape" kind of attitude about things, and um, that's one of the things I love about them. Yeah, I I think when I say I don't think anybody predicted it. I mean, I mean, on the on the one hand, all the evidence that we have speaks to exactly what you just said, which is that. When Americans feel threatened or they feel like something really bad is happening that is within their ken, their opinions can shift on a dime. Like the the most dramatic example is 63% of people said they were happy that we pulled out of Iraq. And then two Americans get beheaded by ISIS and 63% of Americans say they want us to go back into Iraq and, and destroy ISIS. Like that, yeah. like instantly, because the we shouldn't be in Iraq was not a considered opinion, and it's an interesting. I had a conversation yesterday was a, with a with a prominent intellectual uh, who's kind of like with us but not with us, and who said, "Do you really think that when Americans want their children to go, you know, um, their children to go die in, in Ukraine, you know, in the military, like if they're in the to go die?" And I'm like. Every American that I know who you would use the example of, we don't want our children to go die in Ukraine, 90% of them have never met a single person in the military. That is a talk, That is a game talking point. In Vietnam, it was very real. We had a draft. People were going who had no choice but to go and to be sent to someplace three-quarters of the way around the world. Uh, in bizarre circumstances and all that. They still supported the effort for a very long time, by the way. Right. But that's one thing. And this, do people want to go fight? Do people in the U.S. military now want to go fight for freedom or to go help people who are so, or to to take down, be involved in the takedown of one of our two worst adversaries? They're not just there so they can get money for college. Yeah. 
you know? And it's a weird thing because we then use these ideas that are like fundamentally elite ideas. No one will want their children to go die because I wouldn't want mine, but you also wouldn't let your kid go into the military. Right. You know, it's it's, it's very much like when Biden, Biden was fixated on this thing when he pulled out of Afghanistan where he said for the first time in 20 years, America is not at war. And just, he wanted to have this, he thought all of America would have this unbelievable sense of relief from the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I'm not saying this is a, like there are good things and bad things, and I'm sure you agree there are good things and bad things about people being so disconnected from the military and 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 all that. But like Americans did not feel like we were a nation at war in 2019, you know, or 2020. They just didn't, and in part because we weren't really at war. And um, but Biden had this theory about the American reaction that was almost entirely, you know, literary, and. Um, it's, it's, and then it turns out, it's another example, sort of like the beheading thing. It turns out that a lot of people in the abstract, you and I, we were, we were for getting out of Afghanistan on the right terms, you know, eventually, sure. Who who needs to be there forever? You can't get good takeout. But like, um, the way, and, and, and an enormous number of people misread that polling where lots of people are like, yeah, you know, like, I'd like to get out of there. Sure. I don't like the idea of being there forever. And then. And then you tell them, okay, it's like the monkey paw grants your wish. Here's how you get out with this humiliating defeat that looks well, like you just I mean, surrendered in a war. So let's use the Vietnam example again. So Vietnam, we 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 pulled out of Vietnam in April 1975. We had essentially ended combat hostilities, American combat, you know, a year before, pretty much. Um, it had become an unpopular war. There were huge numbers of Americans that had been committed to the theater there. You know, we had lost 58,000 men, hundreds of thousands of people had been, you know, all of that. And we were done. We were out. And guess what? The American people were not happy with how the Vietnam War ended. And they were distraught and they were upset. And there were all sorts of ancillary things that happened over the, after the war was over that kept reminding us that we had failed and that we had been humiliated. I mean, there was, there was the rise of the killing fields in Cambodia and there were the boat people, uh, and the reeducation camps and all of that. And we didn't get out of it clean, not just because the helicopters had pulled off, but because this notion, and that was, you know, the famous Reagan gaffe saying that Vietnam was a noble cause. The only people who thought that that was a gaffe were people who didn't like the war in Vietnam. Anybody who had been there or had family who had gone there or something like that, of course they wanted to hear that it had been a noble cause. Right. Why wouldn't they want to hear that it had been a noble cause? This is how divorced, you know, the American elite, which had basically stayed out of the war. Kids didn't go to Vietnam. They all, you know, had deferments and, and or they went, whatever. You know, they, they did not participate in the war fighting they thought that this was a terrible mistake that Reagan had made rather than a deep connection yeah. to everybody in this country who had actually sacrificed something for this purpose, that maybe it went badly, but it had been a noble thing that you did. It was a noble thing you did or it's a noble thing your relatives did. And it was, it's ignominious to act to say that it wasn't. And that's all I'm saying about how we think about American power, the projection in, in, in with this whole Ukraine thing. 
the American people, I don't want to romanticize them. They're not what they were and everything's different. And that was, you know, after World War II, it was, it was in living memory and all that. But why wouldn't they want to help the Ukrainians? Right. Uh, this is a country being swallowed up by another country. It's not, you know, we're going into Iraq and then we have to make them free because we have nothing else to do once we win the war. We have to try to bring democracy there, and maybe that really goes badly. It's not why we went there in the first place. But in this case, you have a free country being swallowed up by an unfree country that we have a historical antipathy toward and has a historical antipathy toward us. That Biden and those people didn't understand this is how the American people were going to feel is one of the reasons why they're going to get shellacked. Yeah, exactly. There's some horrible, and why Republicans instantly flipped. Yeah. Why Tucker had to change his tune after two days. Because when you say to Republicans, Americans need to go project power to help these people, that they know, that's, that's, that's in the Republican or conservative DNA, but it is not in the liberal DNA. Yeah, no, I agree entirely. And it's not in Biden's DNA. And, and, and we'll have to save, because I was going to bring up the, the crucial issue, but we are running long on time, yeah. uh, of how to understand the 1970s by comparing and contrasting Damnation Alley and Star Wars. Oh, it's, that's a good one. It is a good one. And I, we will have you back to discuss that because it is something that, that, that uh, you know, illuminates great swaths of uh, Western civilization. <laughs> um, uh, listeners should know that our friends at the Commentary Podcast, while not inviting me, are having a big soiree uh, in Palm Beach. What's the date in on Palm that? Beach, April 6th in Palm Beach. Go to commentary.org slash live podcast to attend, to find out how to attend. And let Palm Beach, late afternoon, me, Abe Greenwald, Noah Rothman, Christine Rosen, doing the podcast live. Jonah will one day do this. He should do, you should do the ruminant live, like in a, <laughs> in a, in a spotlight, like in a harsh Smoking spotlight. a cigar. Yeah. 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 Not bad like have, or, or maybe have a guy in a piano, like a guy in the background, like just tinkling a piano <laughs> or, um, or a drum kind of like a, like a jazz perform, like spoken word or doing it with like one foot up on a street light. Yeah. <laughs> like on the stage, it's just standing under the light. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. All right, my friend. It's great to have you on. We got to glop you. sometime soon. Immergut's going to yep. give us a hard hard time if we don't. And uh, thanks for doing this. It was a pleasure. All right. So uh, J Pod has left left the studio. Um, uh, I think that while there will be parts of our conversation that will be more appealing to some than to others, I think it is fair to say that there was something for everybody, um, which is uh, good enough. And I uh, love talking to John. Uh, you know, he's become one of my closest friends in the last few years, or I don't know, 10 years or whatever. Um, and uh, so let us know what you thought about it. Again, we recorded this on Tuesday, but it probably won't air till the end of the week because I'll be traveling. Um, and again, I would tell you about how tonight's Dispatch Live is going to be fantastic, but it'll have happened two days ago or three days ago. So let me just tell you, it was amazing. It was just like uh, just a fantastic conversation. Every Tuesday night at 8 p.m., you tune in. We have a few cocktails or whatever, and uh, we, we, we talk about the stuff, and we do lots of Q&A from the audience. 
So uh, with that, thanks everybody. Thank you to everybody who took us up on the 30 day trial thing for, for, for joining the dispatch. We had a really positive response to that. Could always use more. Um, um, you know, your membership pays for this content, um, which may be not the right pitch at this moment for some people, but I don't care. So thanks for listening. And, uh, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. It's a podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.